please take out worksheet number 10, The Return of the King. Now, we're going to find out the day the devil dies. That's coming up, I promise you. But tonight, we're going to be talking about the return of the king. Now, many people have, the, have a picture in their mind of Jesus and what he's doing now and what he's going to be doing. Will he return? How will he return? There's a lot of questions, even in the Christian world, about the return of Jesus to this earth. And what we want to focus on tonight is what will that look like? As we've seen from Daniel chapter 2, for example, we saw very clearly 2,500 years before now, Bible outline that there would be Babylon, then Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome would be divided, and during the time of those kings, the Bible says, God would set up his kingdom. The stone that was cut out without hands would come in and smash the statue, and that represents the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom. Thus, Jesus is that king who's going to reign. The question is, what will that event look like? How will we know if it's happened? Is it possible we could miss it? What does the Bible say about the return of our king? And before we get started tonight, of course, as we always do, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for being God who created us in the first place and sent your Son to redeem us when we had fallen short of your glory and sin. And as we know, your Bible says that Jesus is coming again. Help us to understand that. Help us to knowingly look forward to it and help us to do all we can to hasten that soon coming through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to John chapter 14, page 1042. Page 1042 in your pew Bible, John chapter 14, Jesus himself speaks these words of comfort to his followers. John chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Page 1042 in your pew Bible. Jesus says, let not your heart be what? Troubled. Basically, he's saying, don't worry. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And of course, this is the same Jesus who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's like speaking very clearly here. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for whom? For you. Don't worry, I'm going to make sure that you can come there. And, verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will do what? Come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus Christ makes it very clear, if I go away, I'm going to come again. Okay, And has Jesus Christ gone away? Yes. So the next thing we're looking for is him to come again. Now, I want to show you something fascinating. We're going to look at this another time later on, but for right now, the, the tiny little sliver of a book right before Revelation, the book of Jude, so small that there aren't any chapters, it's just verses, But in the book of Jude, it tells us who the very first prophet in the Bible is. Now, before we get there, we could field some guesses. Who do you think, well, maybe not. I don't want to put you on the hot spot. You might answer incorrectly and feel bad, or you might answer correctly and ruin the punchline. Okay, so there was an earliest prophet mentioned in the Bible and is found in this little bitty book of Jude. Look at Jude, verse 14. Again, there are no chapters, but just verse 14. 
And it names a name. It says, now whom? Enoch. And when did Enoch live, according to the text? The seventh from whom? Now, who was Adam? The very first one, right? So this is the great, 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 I'm going to get it wrong, right? But seven down the line, right? From Adam. Very, very beginning. And what did he do then? It says here, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, what's that next word? Prophesied. So there we have it. The earliest mention of a prophet in the Bible actually comes in the book of Jude when it says that Enoch, who lived seven from Adam, prophesied, told things, was a messenger of the Lord. But what did he say? Prophesied about these men also. And if you read the rest of the context of Jude, he's talking about evil men, corrupt men within the church. Okay? And he says that Enoch prophesied about these very men. And this is apparently what he said. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Now, again, Enoch is writing this from the seventh from Adam, well before Christ's first coming. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus even comes the first time. Now, you could say, well, he's talking about the coming of Jesus. It must be his first coming because that's when he was living, was on that side of it. But When Jesus came the first time, did he come with 10,000 of his saints? No. Verse 15 continues. To execute judgment on all. Is that what Jesus did when he came the first time? No. No. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, none of that is what Jesus did in his first coming. But here, Enoch, seventh from Adam, is looking down the trajectory of history and he's looking past the first coming of Jesus. He's talking about the coming of Jesus when he comes with 10,000 saints with him to execute judgment. That's not the first coming, that's the second coming. That's the very first prophet in all the Bible was, looking, was shown all the way down the world's history to the second coming of Jesus. It's incredible. In fact, oh, you're filling the blank here. For each Old Testament prophecy of Christ's first coming, you would imagine that the Old Testament would be preoccupied with the first coming of Christ because that's the next event. But for each passage, each Old Testament prophecy of Christ's first coming, which there are myriads of them, lots and lots of them, there are actually eight foretelling his second coming. Okay? Just like we talk about in Isaiah 66. He's already looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth before Jesus showed up the first time, right? The gaze of all Scripture, including the Old Testament, is not just on Christ's first coming when he died on the cross as the sinless sacrifice, the lamb, but also his return as the king. Beyond that, notice this next one. The return of Jesus is mentioned once in every five passages in the New Testament. So if you just randomly opened up five different times to a passage in the New Testament, odds are you would find something talking about the second coming of Jesus. It is, the Bible is littered with passages looking forward not only to the first coming of Jesus, but predominantly to the second coming of Jesus. It seems to be the second coming of Jesus is the entire focus of all Scripture. Okay, it's headed this way. And of course, the first, let's be clear about this. You couldn't have a second coming if Jesus hadn't done what he did the first coming, right? But because of his first coming, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to come again. 
So the same Jesus was here when he was here the first time was already talking about him when he come back the second time. Okay? Now, what will that event look like? Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. And see if this doesn't corroborate what Jude prophesied about thousands of years before. Page 962 in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. Tell me if this doesn't sound exactly what Jude had already prophesied about literally millennia before. It says here in verse 31 of Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory. By the way, this is Jesus speaking, and I love that he doesn't start it with if. Right? He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Okay? So the, the second coming of Jesus is not going to be veiled. It's not going to be shrouded in humility. It's going to be full display, full-on glory. All the angels are going to be with him. Okay? It's going to be a glorious event, not a veiled event. Matthew chapter 16, let's back up a few more pages there to the left. Matthew 16, verse 27. And notice he says the same thing again, just in a different place. This seems to be a repeated theme of Jesus. He says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Okay, so he's going to bring his reward with him, give each one his own works, but he's coming in a glorious manner and not in a humbled, veiled manner. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, page 1174. Page 1174. When Jesus comes again, which he makes it clear is, again, is a when, not an if. Page 1174. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us something else about this. Now, by the way, the last two times where Jesus mentioned his own coming, he repeated he was coming with angels, right? All of his angels. Jude said he's bringing all of his saints with him. Jesus is not coming alone. Let's be clear about this. And you see a reference to this in symbolic language here in Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with what? Clouds, okay? Now, it's interesting. When Jesus was taken up into heaven, he was absorbed up into a cloud, taken up into a cloud, right? And this seems to be a reference to the angels that are coming with Jesus when he comes through the sky. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will what? See him. How many eyes will see him? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. All the tribes of the earth, every eye will see him. It's not like it's a local event where just this state or this county or this city or this nation or this even hemisphere will see him. Apparently, when Jesus comes, it's a global event, not just a local event. Okay? He's going to come. All the nations will mourn. Every eye will see him. And speaking of this seeing him, it's going to be a visible event. Somehow there has crept into the Christian idea this concept that Jesus will come again, but nobody's going to see it. It's going to be under the cover of darkness. It's going to be in a remote, distant place. It's going to be underground. It's going to be the secret coming, right? Sure, we're going to be taken away, or at least some will be taken away, 
And only they will know if it's actually happened. We'll know what's happened when we look around and see that they're not there. Right? This concept of a secret, that not everyone will see it. Well, this is directly contrary to scriptures. Repeated and clear testimony. Look at, um, again, Matthew chapter 24, page 961. Jesus himself speaking of his own return. And it's though as though he anticipates this particular idea being propagated. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus here speaks of this secrecy or lack thereof. Look at verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is where? In the desert. Like, oh, we're in the city, but he's not going to come to a city. He's going to come to this remote spa out in the wilderness, this desert oasis, this place out way out in the distance. He said, if they say to you, he says, no, go check it out. See if it's really me. Is that what he says? No. He said, if they say to you, he is in the desert, do not go out. Okay? So this idea that it's a local event that not everyone can see, he said, if you hear even of that, Completely wipe it off the screen. It's not going to be there. Don't go. Or, look, he is in the inner rooms, right? It's kind of a spiritual seance-like coming. It's going to be a mystic kind of thing. Mm, It's like, that's not it either. It's not something spiritualized away. It's not something uh, locally located out in the middle of some desert somewhere. It's like, this is not how I'm going to return. Do not go. Four, verse 27... As the, what does he compare it to? Lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west. You know, in the middle of the night, when the lightning comes and it flashes from the east to the west, nobody misses it, right? That's the point. Lightning, as it flashes across the sky from the east to the west, it goes over the whole scope of the, of the view. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man so also the coming of the Son of Man will be. Now that's a fascinating thing. It's not going to be in a rooms in some sort of secret mystic kind of thing. And it's not going to be in some remote location out in the desert. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, you look up, you're going to see this event. It's just like the lightning that flashes from the east to the west. That's what it's going to be when Jesus returns. In fact, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, just turn a few books to the right. Acts chapter 1, page 1051. We've already, at least some people, have already seen the coming of Jesus just in reverse. Okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, that is, those disciples, he was, what's what's the next two words? taken up. So there they are standing together, and all of a sudden he starts to go up. Okay. And a what? Cloud received him out of their sight. So was he in their sight? Yes. And then he left their sight, right? He started in their sight, and he goes up in the cloud out of their sight. And notice these, now notice how many off, well, we'll just keep going. I'll come back to that. And while they looked steadfastly towards where? Heaven. So he started on the earth. He started to rise up. 
was caught up in a cloud and then went out of their sight into heaven. Okay? This is the second coming, friends, just in reverse. As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? So you can imagine what a silly sight this must have looked like. Once Jesus was gone and the reason to be looking up has disappeared, you just have guys standing there straining, looking at the sky. Have you ever tried to watch an airplane to see just how far you can watch it, right? And these two men come up to him and say, what are you doing, right? And notice their reason for saying, you don't have to keep staring at the sky. Verse 11 again, who also said, men in Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come, and this is very important, in like what? Manner as you saw him go up into heaven. So the same way he went up is the same way he's coming back down. Is that clear from the passage? Right? So we just basically take everything that Jesus did going up and reverse it. Right? He started on the earth, went up, was caught up in a cloud, went up to heaven. So apparently they say, look, the same Jesus is going to come back the same way he went up. So he's going to come from heaven with the clouds. People are going to see him and he'll come back to the earth. Now, watch this. Again, we're talking about the visibility of Christ's return. Notice how many words in these few verses go back to being able to see or to watch or to look. Notice it again. Verse 9. These, while they watched, he was taken up out of their sight. Verse 10, as they looked towards heaven. And they, men, verse 11, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And then verse uh, continues, the same Jesus who's taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up. Every synonym for looking, seeing, gazing, staring, they're all used right here. It is a clearly a visible event. This concept that it's going to be invisible and no one will see it is patently unbiblical, right? Scripture makes that incredibly clear. By the way, it's not going to be quiet either. Now, something, you know, the lightning doesn't actually make the noise. It's the thunder, right? So you could think, well, if, I, if I'm not looking, then I'll miss it. No, 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 no. You're going to hear this event as well. Let's go to Paul's testimony about this. Page 1137, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul speaks of the return of Jesus. We're going to start with verse 16 and see if this doesn't sound almost identical to what we saw there in Acts chapter 1. Remember they said this same Jesus will come in like manner. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from where? From heaven. Right? So it's the same thing we just saw in Acts chapter 1. The Lord himself, the same Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Three different synonyms there for making a loud noise. Shouting with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. It's going to be an audible event. No one's going to have their earbuds in and miss it somehow. Right? It's going to be there very, very audibly. In fact, he goes on to say, this is just a powerful text in itself about the second coming. 
This voice apparently is going to be so loud, so powerful, so divine, what will it be commanding? It's a, it's a command, right? The voice, a shout, the trumpet of God. What, what happens in response? And the dead in Christ will what? Rise first. If you don't see the coming of Jesus and you don't hear the coming of Jesus, somehow you miss the trumpet sound of the voice of the archangel, the Son of God speaking, commanding the dead to come up. If you somehow miss the clouds of angels and all the heavenly hosts coming and all the splendor and glory, I'm guessing that that next thing will get your attention. When all the dead start coming out of the ground, right? And the dead in Christ will rise. Well, not all the dead, but the dead in Christ, right? Those who died faithful to Christ are going to come up. And verse 6, 17 goes on. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Now, if those coming up out of the graves didn't get your attention, if you're in Christ, you're going to start to rise too. You're not going to miss it, friends. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's exactly what Jesus wanted to convey. I, his will is that where he is that we may be also. And that's how he's going to do it at the second coming. Now, what happens to us physically? Do we just start to rise up off the earth? And Well, I've been walking along. I'm 30 <clears throat> some odd years old now. And um, I'll just kind of stay that age and everything. I'll just transition from this world to that. No, apparently something happens to us when we join Jesus in the air. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1110. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 51. What happens when Jesus comes? Now, again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, obviously some people will raise from the dead when Jesus comes, but other people haven't died at all by the time Jesus comes, right? That's the difference is some will be resurrected in the other term when you go from heaven, I mean from earth to heaven, that's translated, right? Some will be resurrected, some will be translated, some will be brought back to life, some will simply remain alive, okay? Now this is clear. You see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all, what? Sleep. Okay, sleep is a consistent euphemism in Scripture for death. Not everyone will be dead when Jesus comes. There will be some who will live and will hear and will see, exactly like he said. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be, what's that word? We will all be changed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Same language that he used in 1 Thessalonians 4 to describe the coming of Jesus. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay. Now, what is the actual change that occurs? What changes about us? Will we lose our... Will we get a new personality? Will we get a new sense of humor? We get new memories, wipe out those old ones. <laughs> what actually changes? Okay, we're going to see that Scripture clearly teaches that what we get at the second coming are new bodies, a new physical body. Watch this, Romans chapter 8, page 1090. Romans chapter 8. 
Look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 8. And a couple times in this chapter, he tells us specifically what new thing we get when Jesus comes. Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will someday raise you from the dead if you have faith in God. Okay, now verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our what? Body. What's going to get redeemed? Our bodies. We get new bodies. Now, Philippians chapter 3, let's look at this one more time. Page 1131. Philippians chapter 3. Paul comes back to the same idea again, that we're going to be changed, that we go from this world to the next. But what changes is our physical body. We're going to talk about why in a little bit, but let's just talk about what first. Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 20. Notice the tense that he uses. For our citizenship is where? Now, is that present tense, past tense, or future tense? Present tense. Currently, right now, if you're in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of his kingdom, which is heaven, right? It just hasn't come down to this earth yet, but it's up there, right? Your citizenship is in heaven. Now watch. From which, that is from heaven, we also eagerly await for whom? The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what will he do when he comes? Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we're eagerly waiting. Though our spiritual citizenship right now is in heaven, we're still physically on this earth. But someday Jesus is going to come, and what do we get? We get a transformed or a new changed body. Okay, so our body will be like his. And I'm already at the age I would love a new back. You know, I could use new legs, new arms. I'd like to be taller. I don't know what my new body is going to look like. I'll trust him, right? But it's a gift. He's going to wrap me up in it, and that's going to be me. Woo, that's great. Now, the good thing about that is we get a new body. But the challenge of that is what we don't get when Jesus comes again. Let's go to the book of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. It's going to be page 1169 in your pew Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Now again, we'll think back to Philippians while you're finding 1 John 3 and verse 2. Think back to Philippians. What did the Apostle Paul say? For our citizenship is, present tense, where? In heaven. So our citizenship, we're on the books there. So on paper, we're up there, but in person, we're still down here. Does that make sense? Okay. Notice that the Apostle John says basically the same thing. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are, what? Children of God. Present tense. Even though we're living here, we're his children and he's there, right? 
Beloved, now we are, now we, uh, are the children of God and, notice this, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now, I don't know about you, but that is some incredibly good news for the Christian. Okay? Right now, I can be a child of God and still be in the process of changing for the future. Right? Notice this. Now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So I don't know what the finished product of me looks like yet, character-wise, right? And I don't know what it looks like for you, but we do know it's going to change. Even though now we're his children, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know this. So we don't know exactly what it looks like, but we know that when he is revealed, which is another reference to the second coming, when Jesus returns, when he is revealed, we shall be in what condition? Please notice carefully what it says and what it does not say. It says, we shall be like him when he returns. It does not say, for we shall be made like him. Do you catch the nuance there? It's a big difference. Now we can be children of God, but apparently we're supposed to continue to grow in Christ so that when he is revealed, we'll be like him. The end goal is not to have a transaction that merely gets you into heaven. We want a transformation to become Christ-like so that we'll fit into heaven. Think about this. The passage continues. And I love the simple logic of it. How do we know that we will be like him when he returns? For what reason can we be sure of that? Well, look at the text. For we shall what? See him how? As he is. Is he going to be veiled in, the, in, the, in a Judean carpenter body, that kind of thing? Is he going to be slowly and hiding his divinity? Or is he going to come out in his full glory? Full glory. And we shall see him as he is. Now think about that. I, for one, think that's a marvelous thing. But if you, if you pause for just a second, that could almost be a terrifying thing. God's going to say, I'm going to pull back the veil and I'm going to let you see me just as I am. Right? Keep in mind, this is the same God who said, no man shall see my face and what? So if he says, hey, I'm going to let you see my face, I don't know if that's good news. Right? Look look at this. Exodus chapter 30. I'm sorry. uh, Chapter 33. Pardon? Exodus chapter 33, page 85. Go all the way back. Moses asked to see the raw glory of God. And God in his mercy did not grant that request as he envisioned it being requested, being answered, right? He says, in fact, let's just back up for 33, start with verse 18. And he said, please show me your what? Glory. He says, Lord, I want to see your glory. Verse 19. Then he said, I will make all of my what? Goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, verse 20, you you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. Now think about that. 
The same God who said that to Moses in Exodus 33 promises on the other end of the Bible, go to Revelation 22, the very last page of Scripture, what will be the reward of the redeemed? Revelation 22. What does it say? Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4. Right after we, in fact, we just read this a little bit in our question and answer session about the tree of life was there in verse 2 for the healing of the nations. And then in verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his what? Face. And the implication is, and not die, right? They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So the same guy in Exodus, the same God who in Exodus 33 tells Moses, no one can see my face and live, promises that redeemed are going to see his face. Now, to me, that's fascinating. So we go back to 1 John chapter 3. How does he conclude... 1 John chapter 3, page 1169. How does he tell us to prepare for this particular event? Well, very simply, verse 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him, that's the hope of seeing Jesus face to face, going to heaven with him, and everyone who has this hope in him does what? purifies himself. To what extent? Just as he is pure. Very simple. We're going to see him like he is because we're going to be like him. So we need to right now, though we're citizens of heaven now, we need to start becoming more and more like Christ so that when he comes, going from this world to the next will be seamless. Let me show you something. Oh, by the way, Jesus said it the most succinctly, the most sublimely. You might even have this cross stitch somewhere on your house, right? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, from the Sermon on the Mount, page, five, uh, page 938. Matthew 5, verse 8. He takes what John takes several verses there to say, and look at what Jesus just says, just so simply. Chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? See God. So if you want to see God, apparently you purify yourself, yourself just like he is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now when Jesus comes again, again, that's not an if, but when. And we've seen already from the signs of the end message. It's quickly. He's coming soon. The signs are all around. I believe very firmly that I will see Jesus return in my lifetime. Patently, I, I sincerely believe it. But again, I don't know if that's necessarily good news, right? Because I want to do more than simply live to the second coming. There are going to be plenty of people who just happen to be alive at the time Jesus returns. Living to the second coming has no inherent value. I made it to the end. Woohoo! Well, I don't want to just live to the second coming, friends. I want to live through the second coming. I want to go to the other side. I want to go with him. I don't want to be there when he comes and just get destroyed by the brightness of God. I want to be part of those who go through.
And what I want to show you from Scripture is that the same event, the coming of Jesus, the return of our Lord, the return of the King, is witnessed by all people, but there are two sharply contradicting reactions to that event. Not everybody looks with hope to the second coming of Jesus. In fact, some of them dread it. Some of them long for it, love it, can't wait to see it. Others are like, please take your time. Right? So what makes the difference? Well, first of all, I want to demonstrate that this is factually true from Bible, from the Bible. Matthew chapter 13, page 948 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 13. You recall this from our second night together? The parable of the wheat and the tares. How when his servants saw the presence of these tares or the weeds amongst the good seed, the wheat, the owner, the sower says, no, 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 let them both grow together until the harvest. In fact, we'll just read it from verse 29. But he said, no, well, that's while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first... Gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Notice there's one harvest for both kinds of seed, right? And one group is bundled together for the burn, and the other is bundled together for the barn. So what makes the difference? I don't want to go to the burn. I want to go into his barn. So how do we, how do, we, how do, we do that? What does the Bible teach about this? Matthew chapter 25, same book, go to to the right now. Matthew chapter 25. Again in verse 31. We saw this one earlier, but we're going to continue just a little bit further. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And we read that to demonstrate that God is, that when Jesus Christ returns, it will be a glorious event, right? But now verse 32. All the nations will be gathered together before, gathered before him, and he will, what's that word? Separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. His sheep from his goats. Now, What makes the difference between the sheep and the goats? Well, let's just keep reading. Verse 33, And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now why? For I was hungry, and you did what? Gave me food. Like, oh, well, that's simple. That's a piece of cake, literally. (laughs) I was thirsty, and you gave me what? Drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. That's why you're going to be part of the sheep. That's why you're going to come into the kingdom. Then, verse 37, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to this, say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Okay? Now, that's the one group. Let's turn now to the left hand. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't know about you, but I never want to hear Jesus say that to me. Don't want that. I want to be with him, not away from him. And I certainly don't want to go there. So what makes the difference? Verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, let me ask you a question. These people on the left hand, let's make it very clear. They are fully intending to get into heaven. Right? So what makes the difference? Now, one of the things I find fascinating about this passage is that the response of the righteous to Jesus saying, come on in, and the response of the wicked to Jesus saying, depart from me, is word for word identical. They have the same response. Lord, when did we see you? Now think about it. The people on the left hand are fully expecting to get in. They want to get the kingdom. They want to get into the kingdom. No problem. And they say, Lord, when did we see you? Right? As if to say, Lord, if we'd have known it was you, sure, we'd have, we'd have done anything. We'd have done prison ministry. We'd have done outreach. We would have, we would have, you name it, we would have done it if we'd have known it was you. Because you can get us in. Right? But the righteous ask it, I have to imagine, with a different intonation. Lord, when did we see you? The other guys are like, well, if we'd have known it was you, but it wasn't you, it was just people. Yeah, right? I'm not taking care of people. If I'd have known it was you, I'd be getting something out of it. Sure, I'll do it, yeah. But the other people say, when did we see you? Hungry or sick or thirsty. All we saw was people. And that's what we do when people need help. We had no idea it was you. And Jesus is like, that's my point. You didn't even know it was me, and you did it anyway. You fit in. Right? The one group is fully expecting to get in and exchange a transaction. If I'd have known it was you, I'd have done it. I'm in there. But this other group has no transaction mentality at all. But they've experienced a genuine transformation of character they can go from this world to the next. And John says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. 
And the greatest evidence is, for we shall see him as he is. We will see him as he is. Notice the two different responses. Revelation chapter 6. We're coming to a conclusion tonight. Revelation chapter 6. The same event elicits two sharply different responses because there are two different characters in the world. Notice the response of the wicked to the return of Christ. Revelation chapter 6, that's page 1178 in your pew Bible, starting with verse 14. A description of the coming of Christ. Then the sky receded up as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Now it's interesting. Their response to Jesus' coming is to do what? Hide. Just like Adam and Eve when they sinned, the very first thing they did was to hide. They can't stand to be in the presence of a holy God in their unholy state. Hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. Catch this now. From what? From the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. By the way, have you ever met a Lamb that was wrathful? You know? I mean, how wrathful can a lamb get? Bad. You know, it's like, I'll snuggle with you real hard. I'll woolly you. You know what? A lamb? Seriously. You would imagine a beast or a dragon. Or, oh. And by the way, what's the thing they're afraid of? Is it the sword that he, or the sickle in his hand or the angel, the, the, the fire? What's the thing they're afraid to look at? His face. Right? They see the purity, the glory, the brilliance, the splendor of a holy, just God. The face of Jesus, just as it is. And to them, it's the scariest, most awful, run away, hide from it, I'd rather die than be with it kind of experience. However, on the other hand, go back to Isaiah Chapter, and this is a typo there. Please don't, I mean, Isaiah 9.25, I'm sure, is a fine text. But 25.9 is what we're looking for, okay? Isaiah 25.9, page 677. And notice the, the other reaction to Jesus coming. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is what? Our God. Notice he's not just the God or the wrath of the Lamb. This is our God. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be what? Glad and rejoice in his salvation. So one group is saying, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him and he will save us. And the other one says, hide us from the face of him. It's the same God. It's the same Jesus. It's not like he's got one face that's really scary and mean and the other one's all full of love. It's the same Jesus. But the difference is the character of the people. One can't wait to see Jesus and one can't stand to see Jesus. Mm. 
So let's go down to our real appeal. When it comes to the second coming of Christ, knowing that it's soon, it's great, knowing that it's visible and audible and global and literal, all of these things are great. But what's the practical application? The preparation for Jesus' coming is not just knowing statistics about his coming. Apparently, it's not just a transaction, it's a transformation that he wants to see. When Christ returns, we will each be given a glorious heavenly body. Again, praise the Lord, ready for it. However, the correspondingly glorious heavenly character required of all God's loyal subjects must be ours first. And by the way, the reason is simple. Think about the sublime logic of it all. Bodies can be given, right? For instance, how were we made in the first place? Genesis 2, 7, the dust of the ground, right? He heaped it together and made a body and breathed into the breath of life. A man became a living soul, right? He can make a body out of literally dirt. <laughs> He's done it once before. He made one out of a rib, right? He can do this. A body is a piece of cake to make for God. Bodies can be given, but character has to be grown. Okay? A body can be given, but a character can only be grown. And God respects your choices. So the character that you're currently developing, which, by the way, character development is a very simple thing. Every decision turns into a habit, which turns into a lifestyle, which forms your character, which determines your destiny. Okay? Your decision... God will not force you. He cannot make you. You are the only you the universe has. Think about this. You're the only you God has. Now, he could make a body that looks just like yours, right? Probably make the vocal cords the right length and the right width and everything that the voice comes out just like yours. Probably the same color eyes, same crazy hair, whatever you got going on, right? You looking like you, he can do. But you being you, only you can do. Because God's not going to make your choices for you. And your character is determined by the choices that you make. Does that make sense? So that though he could dress up some dirt and form it and, and make it look just spot on like you, might he be able to fool the angels, might be able to fool your relatives, your friends, your family, your co-workers. But in, his, in your heart, Jesus would know that that's not really you. Because only you are you? And we think about being lost from our perspective. Man, it'd be awful to be lost, but think about it from Christ's perspective. Everyone who's lost is an eternal loss. He can't force you to do anything. He won't do it. So a body, he's happy to dole out. Great, everybody, new bodies for everyone, all around, bodies, woohoo. But a character has to be grown in this life. Which brings me to this point. As Christians, our goal should be more than merely to someday get into heaven. We should ask the Lord to fit us into the society of heaven even now. Think about it. If Jesus is coming back, and we haven't learned to love the things of Jesus, would we even want to go where he is? If Jesus let you into heaven, 
And he said, come be with me. But we haven't learned to like him for him. Would that even be heaven to us? Mercy. He's more than willing to get us in. The question is, are we willing, through his transforming power, to allow him to fit us in so that when he comes, I don't want to be with the goats on the left, right? I want to be with the sheep on the right. I want to fit into heaven. I don't even, I don't even want to know if it's Jesus I'm helping. I just want to be like Christ now so that when Christ comes, being with him forever will actually be heaven. Has it made sense tonight? Jesus is absolutely coming back. I believe it's soon. I believe it's visible. I believe it's global and audible and all those things. But friends, the hope of seeing Jesus should be just that, hope and not dread. It should say, Lord, I can't wait. And if I realize, you know what? I really don't like the things of God. This is what this time is for. To see for yourself that the Lord is good and to choose you this day whom you will serve. Jesus is coming soon, but more than that, I don't want anyone missing when he does. I hope it has made sense. Tomorrow night, we're going to be looking at the day the devil dies. Okay? Satan's going to get his, and I praise the Lord for it. But I don't want to be part of that group when he does. I want to be a part of the group that goes with God. I don't want to go to the bar- burn. I want to go to the barn. Right? And I hope that's the desire of your heart tonight, too. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the promise repeated over and over and over and over again in Scripture that Jesus is coming again. Help us to not be deceived into thinking it's something other than what the Scripture tells us. Lord, we know it's going to be visible. It's going to be audible. It's going to be global. You're not going to miss it. The dead in Christ will rise first. But Lord, when it occurs, Lord, help us to be ready for that event. Help us to want to be with Jesus. Help us to have taken this life, the precious probationary time of this living that we have now. And Lord, help us to become more like Christ so that when Christ returns, we'll actually want to go. So that when we see him, we'll say, Lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. And he will save us. Lord, it's my prayer that Jesus returns soon and very soon, but more importantly even than that is that not one here is missing when he does. So Lord, I ask you to keep us faithful. Help us to be more like Jesus through the power of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.